0: All right. Liliana, well, welcome to the show. It's great to see you today. How's it going?
1: It's good. It's going well. It's weird to see you smiling at me, though.
0: Uh, don't I always?
1: No. <laughs> no, it's, it's no. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: My pleasure. All right. So for today, we're going to do a couple of things. We're going to talk about who you are, why you're running for office, what you want uh, to happen in Atlanta, your vision. But before we do that, we have to know how Atlanta you are. So, right, So, how Atlanta are you?
1: You break that down for me.
0: All right. So it's two a.m. Thursday night. You're hungry. You want to go out for a late night eat. Where are you going?
1: <laughs> well, okay. So it used to be, I like. Well, in my neighborhood, my go-to spot was Burger Joy, but that closed down. Um, y'all looking? You're making me real nervous. Take your mask off. I need to see your face. <laughs> um, So ours is usually like in my neighborhood, Happy Donuts, Burger Joy, Burger Win, even though Burger Joy shut down, I'm pretty sad about that because even when there was an ice storm, they would still deliver to you. Um, There was a place called Dawa, but I think they closed down because I think they were fronting for something else. There was usually, their delivery cars all had bashed out windows, so I'm not sure what else was going on there. And you were never allowed inside the actual building. But their food was good. Hey, that's all that matters. Uh, Although their Yelp reviews were really scary. And then, uh, yeah, I mean, those are the places who's, I, I, I stopped doing McDonald's and everything on Memorial a while ago, um, just because of, because of personal ethical dilemmas with, with how they source their food. But locally, not like Burger Joy, Burger One's any better, but those are the places that I typically go to it for 2 a.m. But most of the time, because I'm now in my thirties and campaigning full-time, so i am I am passed out. So if I'm eating anything, it's my pillow
0: at 2am oh yeah yeah done all right how atlanta am i so in another how atlanta are you question um so we're known as a music town Mm -hmm. right who is like who are you listening to what artists are you really digging right now you're the worst no
1: um for me for well in atlanta I'm actually going to take this back. So like the, a lot of the artists I listen to still, like when I feel really nostalgic are the artists that were really big during our house scene phase. So back in like six oh7 even like Oh five, the house scene, like the house music scene was really strong. So before, when the city was still the second emptiest city in, in the country and we we're just, you know, the shitty gritty city, um, most of the houses like all of our friends had recording studios in their living rooms or their basements or even one time there was one time we turned one of our bathrooms into a recording studio so like these local bands that would come up uh in the house scene were the ones I followed which probably nobody hears anymore um so you had people like the back pockets or you had even CeeLo was recording just outside of where like lot of fruit is now or you had of course you there were people with um. What it, we, had, we had different house shows called, I mean, it was what, The Coven. We had Yellow House, Purple House. There was Fort Foxy. There was Blackout House. And these were all the houses that you could play at all throughout southeast Atlanta if you were an up-and-coming band. And there were a lot of them back then. But that's completely died out now because for the most part because nobody can do that without violating some noise ordinance or getting into trouble. But back then, when the city was completely neglected... In a lot of ways, the music that came out of it was amazing. Not to say that there aren't still really great musicians now, but our punk scene and even like local rappers, what they were producing in their own homes was incredible. Half those you'll never hear on Spotify or Apple you'll Music. You'll hear them on SoundCloud. Maybe yeah, you'll <laughs> still hear them on SoundCloud. There's some I still think you can Google and like pay like a you know a dollar ninety nine for an album or something.
0: Got it. All right. So let's assume that you are elected the district five council member and you've got to go wine and dine some people who are interested in you know, doing business, moving to Atlanta, right? Like uh-huh. some corporate group that's like, oh, we want to come uh, move to Atlanta, move in district five. Hmm. Where do you take them?
1: Depends on the neighborhood. I mean, if you're talking Cabbage Town, probably Carroll Street Cafe. If I'm looking at someplace like if Edgewood, there's one spot everyone goes to in Edgewood, it's El Tesoro. If you're looking at someplace like um if you're looking at East Lake, I would I mean my go to in East Lake is Lake and Oak or Salaryman. Um
0: I haven't been there yet.
1: Their food is so good. Is it? It's really good. Yes. We ordered a lot there from the pan during the pandemic for all of our stay at home meals. And then what's right next to Salaryman again, Chris? That's what that I'm thinking about. Poor Hendrix, also awesome. Um and Kirkwood, I mean, our, like, I always go to the Pullman, always. So those are some of the restaurants in the district I would take them to.
0: Got it. Great. So I will let the listeners and viewers judge how Atlanta is Liliana. That, that is just, it just feels like a setup. <laughs> All right. So now that we've got that done, like, tell us about who is Liliana. Give you your background. You grew up where, what motivates you in the, in the world? What's, what's your story?
1: Yeah. So I come from a family of Muslim immigrants and refugees, uh, or as my family would say, Muslim immigrants and refugees. There's a big difference in the pronunciation depending on who you talk to. Um, and my dad escaped here in about 82. Um, my mom was- From where? From Iran. And before that, my family escaped from Azerbaijan. So there's a long history of displacement on my dad's side of the family. And um, my mom was actually born in Buffalo but grew up down here. She went to Lakeside High School. Uh, and then I was born at Piedmont Hospital and grew up in Gwinnett for the most part because um, that's where our immigrant community lived. And when my dad escaped here, uh, he was at first an illegal refugee and met my mom three months after he he made it into the U.S. and then was informed he was going to be deported because he had come in illegally. He met my mom and a month later they were married and they've been married ever since. Um, depending on what the day of the week, they either love or hate each other. So that's about as romantic as a kid. So, but they, they braised me um, in public service and they were both like growing up, they did not have a lot of money. My dad was my both my parents worked pretty much full time. I was at work with them all the time. My mom was a dental hygienist and a real estate agent and worked it out by Linux. My dad, do y'all remember the Abbey? Do you remember when the Abbey there was I this wasn't here. The, <laughs> there's a there's this church that's over by Piedmont and kind of like the like down Piedmont and, or I'm sorry, down like Piedmont and Ponce area. And there was a period of time where it opened up as a restaurant and uh you dressed up as a monk and as a server. And there was no elevator. So up and downstairs, but all my uncles worked there. They either worked there or in some form of hospitality at these hotels downtown. So there was like a huge Iranian immigrant community at that time doing that type of work. Um, and, but, I, but I started working downtown with my dad in shelters um, when I was about five because he was a farm tech at Grady before he ended up opening up his own pharmacy right uh, next to the old Butler Street YMCA. And I started working in shelters when I was five, started working at that pharmacy with my dad while I was still in elementary school, going into middle school and um also started marching in the streets with my dad when i was about eight because obviously he he ended up escaping iran fighting for fair free democratic elections that's why he got exiled so he continued that fight here and continued engaging me in politics and public service from a really young age and when i came to atlanta at 18 to go to georgia state um i was the first girl in our family to leave to move away from home which is not common and wasn't common in our family and was pretty much disowned after like was cut off. So I lived uh, out of my car and on people's sofas on and off for years. Um, At one point did get a house in Edgewood, but ended up living with someone who turned out to be an addict. So a lot of our money that was supposed to go to utilities went to things like alcoholism and, you know, other things. And so the Edgewood Kroger is where I would usually get ready in the mornings before class at GSU, brushing my teeth Using and your definitely didn't know any of those. No, happening I kept it, it completely hidden, because if they had known, one, I actually never told them where I lived, because they were trying to get me to come back home. So I kept it completely hidden. We did not talk really at all. Um,
0: and what changed? How did you go from not talking to a relationship being repaired?
1: Well, when I I came out to my, I finally came out when I was 23. I knew I was gay from the time I was in preschool, to be honest with you, but like I knew I was different. Um, but I did not come, I was, that was shamed out of me growing up. And, uh, by the time I turned 23 and finally gotten tired of hiding it, um, because at a certain point, like that feeling of hating yourself for who you are hits a breaking point and you either cave or you accept yourself. Um, and I was lucky enough to be able to accept myself and I came out to myself and still kept it hidden from my family. Um, because my mom made it very clear that she didn't want to know and then I started dating my partner Chris when I was uh 25 and she when we first started dating I wasn't even speaking to my parents we've not been together nine years and she is probably the almost the entire reason why my family and I actually have a semi-good relationship now Uh, because coming out and meeting someone that I loved actually made me really like myself a lot more and it was this massive burden lifted off my chest and as soon as I became happier, I was able to be a more positive influence in my family's life and our relationship rebuilt from there, but it took a lot of time. And then I came out to them when I ran in 2017 and, you know, the Huffington Post and Teen Vogue. So that kind of forced them to face the fact that I was gay. <laughs>
0: So they didn't know. So you came out to them when you turned twenty three.
1: No, I came out to myself when I turned twenty three. Oh, I see. So you came and out then, to
0: yourself when you turned twenty three, but you didn't come out to the family until. So my family for election. My family
1: knew, kept avoid I kept saying I wanted to talk to them about it. um And C- Chris, bless her, stayed in the closet for like kept our. I kept our relationship in the closet for five years before I came out to my family, but. They all had a feeling, but nobody wanted to talk to me about it. So I gave them the heads up that there was going to be some pretty big breaking news on national headlines.
0: So they just thought Chris was like your best friend who just happened to always oh, be around. Know, my roommate, yeah,
1: right, uh huh. Right. My my roommate and You're best friend. Your long
0: suffering roommate. <laughs>
1: my roommate and best friend who just happened to share a room with me. Um, yeah, they. I came. So the news broke in 2017 that I was the first out queer Muslim person to run in the country which and I did not know in
0: a very big way.
1: Yeah. And so that was how my family was forced to face the fact that I was gay, face the fact that I was queer. And I think because it was accepted on such a in such a positive way or presented such a po- positive way, it really impacted them in accepting it. But they all my cousins came to me and said, "We're so glad you finally came out because everyone was just waiting." But like I said, it wasn't allowed to be discussed at any family get-together ever. Um but yeah, I I I would say that because of that work, though, and because of like not being able to talk with my family, and having to stay out of a car, and having to sometimes dumpster dive for food or resort to other things, and growing up and you know leaving paycheck to paycheck and working four or five jobs at a time, really familiarized me with a lot of the issues that a lot of the people that we try to fight to represent face every single day. Um, it made me a better organizer. It made me a better community activist. It was really, really hard, and a lot of it was super traumatizing because it led to things like assaults and muggings and, you know, being homeless. Um, But it taught me resilience. It taught me how to build community, and it taught me a lot more about Atlanta and that um, it's a city with a lot of potential, but that needs a lot of strong leadership and a lot of really resilient political
0: will. So speaking of political will, where do you think – it's lacking in the city.
1: Or do I think it's lacking in the city? On like what issues? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no shortage of issues where political will is lacking.
0: Just highlight two or three of them.
1: Affordable housing. Homelessness. Uh, our wealth disparity. Our income gap. The opportunity gap between black and white kids in our public school system. Um, conservation of green spaces and building green infrastructure. And in preparation for extreme weather. Transparency in city spending. So right, so that was
0: like ten, I think. <laughs> uh, no. Just to take a step back a bit, you're running for District Five Council. Mm-hmm. Help. What is where is District Five? What are the neighborhoods that that encompasses?
1: So as of right now, before redistricting, it's um, southeast Atlanta. So it's a bit of downtown, some of or- some of Old Fourth and Sweet Auburn. That whole area is kind of divided between D5 and D2. Um, and then it's uh, North Grand Park, Cabbage Town, Reynolds Town, North Ormwood, Glenwood, East Atlanta, Edgewood Neighbors, Kirkwood, Lake Clare,
0: and East Lake. Yeah. So a lot of a lot of um, well-known neighborhoods. Yes. Um, when did you move to District 5, which I think was at the first house? 2006. Yeah. What, what attracted you to District 5 then?
1: That's where all the artists were. And that's where, like, if you were a college student that didn't have money, you ended up in you ended up in Cabochon, Reynolds Town, or East Atlanta, or Edgewood neighbors. Like, so Cabochon, Reynolds Town were some of the first places I lived because that's where we could. I mean, I remember paying 350 for rent and thinking that was expensive. Um, but we all ended up there because it's where there was a really diverse.
0: And that 350 was that for like like room. A one room, one room and a house.
1: Yeah. That's like pretty much with utilities included for the most part. I remember that time I got up to 450 I felt like that was like. The most expensive rent in the house, and I felt you know I had my own bathroom and everything. Felt pretty uh right, really fancy felt upper crust. Oh right? yeah, <laughs> massively <laughs> upper crust. Yeah, um, but yeah, three fifty three seventy five. That usually paid for a room and utilities for the most part. So you purchased a home in. So it, I was renting my house in Taco Town. It was actually so I was twenty three. I had been kicked out. I had just gotten back from backpacking in Southeast Asia and doing crisis relief work because I've done crisis relief work in 26 countries around the world, as well as all throughout the Southeast in Atlanta. And i just gotten back from doing like a six, seven month stint in Southeast Asia and Australia, came back, ended up getting, uh, there was, uh, there was a really hard situation in my house and my family and I had no savings and I was, and I had no, and I was kicked out. Um, and I was staying out of my car when one of my best friends took me in, in Grant Park and literally took care of me for three months while I got back on my feet again. And I found this house in Taco Town and started renting it with four other people. Um, and into the second year, the house went into foreclosure because our property manager was embezzling the funds instead of paying off the mortgage. Um, and the owner was, the owner was given a six month grace period. And during that time, I managed to use all of my savings, everything I'd saved up to pay off the liens on the property and got my dad to buy the house um, for really cheap. And so I started, I'm still paying off my house to my family, but that's, I bought the house in, that was like 2011, 2012, around that time, like right when Occupy was
0: starting Mm -hmm. or just shortly after Occupy ended. So from 2012 to where we are today. Mm -hmm. Just talk to me about, like, how the neighborhood has changed and what role has Atlanta mayor and city council leadership had in that change?
1: So our neighborhood is, it's the only part of Grant Park that's in D5. We're a weird little pocket. In fact, I just found out the other day that people at City Hall referred to us as the forgotten people, which, you know, we'll take that. We'll wear that. It's fine. Um, because it's an eclectic little pocket. But when I first moved in, I mean, there were... It was some of the houses were empty, but a lot of them were college students and artists um, across the street was an artist. He actually his ho- his home was built, but he bought the neighboring house at the Weston for like a couple of dollars back when that was still a thing. And they moved the house over there um, and sit on the lot, sat it on the lot next to him. And uh, the gentleman that lived there from the time it was built or moved there to the time and to just like like last year he passed away so this is the first time that house is seeing a new like new ownership but
0: how much did that house sell for
1: (laughs) um his family has taken it over but it's now valued i think their the houses across the street are valued around like five hundred thousand dollars so put it into perspective i'll be completely transparent i bought my like my family bought my house for 150 and it's now valued at like over 600 i think and that was, you know, not that many years ago. Right. And the houses next to me In less than ten years. Right. And the houses all down the street from me were either young, uh, like a like one or two young couples, but it was mostly all college students. Like all of us, it was like a street full of students for the most part. And now it's it's all young families or retirees for the most part.
0: So as a or counsel, an Airbnb house. Yeah. As a council member, what what can you do about that? So there's. We are, you know, a lot of people are
1: really frustrated, especially in Southeast Atlanta, by the level of construction that's going on. They think are, there's a lot of development, but surprisingly, we're actually building at a 20,000 unit deficit. We're building the lowest we built since the 90s. We're actually, uh, we're actually not underpopulated compared to where we were in the 1950s. We were actually denser then than we are now. Um, we also had a lot more alternative transit then. Um, so one of the ways that we fix it is actually with a vision and planning instead of reactionary planning. Um, instead of lying, like variances should be a very rare thing. And yet we see them what every is the week. variance
0: just for folks it's who may an, not be familiar with that. getting like an
1: exception on something. So let's say that you want to, as like, say, let's say there's a restaurant opening up that wants to get, that doesn't want to meet the parking minimum. They prove that they're not, they don't need to meet whatever parking requirements because there might be nearby parking or they don't have any space to do that. They might get a variance to navigate around that to like have an exception done so that they can open. Same thing happens with building houses um, with new developers coming in, but those should actually be a pretty rare thing, and yet they happen in Atlanta all the time. So, for example, there's a lot of talk about broad sweeping ordinances, you know, ending single-family housing, all of that, because 63% of our city is uh, zoned single-family housing, but one of the things that our city has failed to do is actually take a look at (laughs) how much housing is needed neighborhood by neighborhood for example we have some great city design plans that none of them have been implemented and city
0: design you mean this was done by the planning department correct
1: so like atlanta will pay we're great at playing for plans and then just letting them get dusty as hell on us yeah Yeah, just just, like dust dust. yeah just like a thing that we
0: do why is that Why? if you had to like pinpoint why that is that we've got plans galore but no action because
1: i feel that the city is more consumed with liquidating culture than actually protecting it. What does it's, that mean? It means selling off the city like selling off the city's culture to the highest bidder rather than protecting and retaining it. Uh, we're a city that's oftentimes obsessed with what feels most convenient um the mo- like for we're we're obsessed with immediate gratification. Um I would say we're obsessed with that as a country. Is why there's not like, you know, there, media gratification is a very big thing. But there's no long-term planning. Other cultures, other cities, other countries have, you know, they talk about one, 200, 300-year plans. Atlanta can barely come up with a two-year plan. We've been trying to repave Decab Avenue for how long but now? Isn't
0: that just endemic of American politics generally where you think in cycles of this is my election year and I've got to get make it to the next four years or I don't care about...
1: That's true. And Atlanta is definitely a city that's uh, been burned down more than once, quite literally. And also, you know, we've we've, we're young. We've lost our entire artist community in a a plane crash before. We've had to start over time and time and time again. So there is not a lot of history to always learn from. We tend to erase it really, really quickly. And we're young and we don't have like, you know, we we only we only came into existence because of a railroad, not because we had water nearby or or steel or any other type of trade that was a staple in our country. So, yeah, we are a city that formed completely by accident. But that being said, and while it is endemic to American politics in general, it's still no excuse for a city that has that's about that's an international destination that technically has the busy well now second busiest airport in the world, that is going to become the biggest climate refugee city probably on the East Coast, that has is considered what one of the number one places to do business that has Southern Hollywood headquarters set up here that has the largest generation generator of revenue in the Southeast region. That's not that can't be an excuse anymore.
0: You said all those things, and yet Atlanta is also a city where a child has a four percent chance of getting get out, out of poverty. poverty
1: where a black child has a 4% chance of getting out of poverty and where we have, like you said, like, I mean, double digit opportunity gaps between black and white kids and APS where we were just named the worst city to live on, on minimum wage. And yeah, I do think a lot of that is due to a lack of political will. I think it's also due to, I think it's due to long, um, time incumbency so because in a
0: strong mayor form of government what role can you as a council member play like how do you actually move that needle by
1: equipping the public with what they should ask the mayor for people are i mean the people are the ones paying the paychecks of 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 public servants and so like we've forgotten that across the board you can see that that's 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 true wherever you look at politics people forget that they're the ones who are paying for paying the salaries of our elected officials um, and here I would say that council has failed for a very long time on educating the public on what they can ask for and educating the public on who to ask what for. That's why you have people that when we are talking about changing the budget, we're asking city council to allocate money towards education and health. Two things that the city charter charter prohibits them from doing because people are not educated on what they can ask for. And no, that's not necessarily by accident. People that are more disengaged benefits larger investors on what they can get done. And if people are disengaged, they're not going to be at the table to know what to ask for. So how at, how in the world can a local government be representative of a community that doesn't know how to participate, how to, how to get engaged and what to ask for and who to ask for, who to ask for it from.
0: So your first 100 days in office, what are your priorities?
1: Uh, Launching a year round field program coming up with a new, what is a field program? That's out knocking on doors. So, Typically, you'll see people obviously come knocking on your doors two, three months before election day, right? Just blitz. But it's also the best way to know what's happening in your community. Our NPU systems are a great concept, and but
0: what's an NPU? I, I keep forgetting. I'm sorry.
1: <laughs> Neighbor NPU is our neighborhood planning units that were started under Maynard Jackson, uh, our city's first Black mayor, which are a brilliant concept. But just like most things, over time have lost a lot of their influence and power and become something of privilege to participate in. So your single parents your full-time employees, your full-time students like the people renters, people that are typically the ones hurting the most don't typically get to attend. It's it's a thing of privilege to be able to have the time to to come to one of these meetings, so they're not widely accessible. Some you have to pay to be a part of. So it's also first 100 days is about challenging that and
0: so a district-wide field operation. Correct.
1: Okay. Because there are seniors, there are renters, there are single parents, there are all these people that are getting left out of the conversation. We've knocked over eleven thousand doors, almost over twelve thousand, and I can tell you that a majority, like probably less than five percent of those those voters, have made it to an MPU meeting.
0: And there are Little, a lot of new voters in the district a, as well.
1: Thirteen thousand new voters registered since twenty
0: seventeen. Wow. And that's okay, after so, the purge. Got it. So that's number one. Mm-hmm. What's what's the second and third?
1: Uh, coming up with them and starting to engage in neighbors, the neighborhoods on a on this idea of a concept of neighborhood by neighborhood master plan design. So we have the data based on the, based on our city planning uh, over how our population is supposed to, how much it's supposed to expand over the next 20 years. We know neighbor, an organization called neighbors for more neighbors has come up with the data that based on those projections, how many units ever each neighborhood in the city, how many units each neighborhood in the city of Atlanta Needs to add so that the burden isn't put entirely on one neighborhood. So we're talking from here to Buckhead to West End, South, all of it. Everybody is actively engaged. So it's a better distribution. It's a better distribution. But also when you go into a community with an idea of what they need, rather than being like, hey, so what do you want? You go into a community to shape the conversation. And allow them to have a say of how they want that development to come in It's both – we we change it by both meeting the need and understanding that there are more units need to be added because of the fact that we're in a housing shortage and we're in a housing crisis, also in a renter's crisis, also an affordable housing crisis. So we come in with the data that we need to help shape the conversation and then people can actively join in and talk about how they want that to come into their community and how they want that shaped. And then you can actually – you actually back that up with, with courting um, – the federal government for federal dollars for the city's first ever energy vulnerability and heat vulnerability assessment. Then you have the data to start balancing development with our green spaces, conservation zones, and tree canopy.
0: Okay. So a council district office is usually between one and four or five people, depending on how you decide to stretch your budget. Mm -hmm. How do you accomplish all of that with that type of, with a staff of that number?
1: Well, by one, by treating council as a full time job, which council members should be doing, but we know that a majority do not. Um, but they did Although just. Although it's
0: technically in the charter, not considered a full time job. Correct,
1: but they did just vote themselves up a fifteen thousand dollars increase during a pandemic. So so they did over... another. They so are currently,
0: over... the council makes sixty. No, about
1: seventy two thousand now. Over seventy thousand. With, with the bump, it's now over seventy thousand. Yes. So that
0: now, I'll say when I worked on city council, the council members were making 40. Right. And, and then they voted themselves up like that 2013, 2012, 2013.
1: Mm-hmm. And then they had, they voted themselves up that what $20,000 pay raise. And then they just did another one during the pandemic. Um, which you can, I mean, obviously with the pay study, I'm sure that that was accurate, but you could see how that might not be the best message to small businesses and other individuals who are struggling. But to answer the question, shade shade aside
0: why not just okay so if it's 72 right at what point should they change the charter and say okay at this number it now becomes a full-time job or is that something you think they should do should you should counsel be a full-time job
1: I personally think council should be a full-time job, maybe not permanently, but right now, with the amount of divisiveness and all the issues that we have coming down the pipeline, because we're dealing with a city that has kicked the can down the road for decades on infrastructure issues, where a billion dollars backlogged in in sidewalks alone, multi-billion dollars if you talk about infrastructure overall, we have a very divided community and people have forgotten that council is a nonpartisan seat. And so the job of the next council person is also going to be to humanize all those different perspectives and probably the most cha- chaotic, time any of us have seen in our lifetimes to get people to actually, the job of a, a public servant is to, is to humanize different perspectives, especially those who are most under-resourced to find the common ground so that everybody can benefit because, and, and encouraging everyone to that, that we all have to sacrifice something, but that's the job of the, to me that's one Mm -hmm. of the most vital jobs of somebody in public office, is taking into account all those perspectives, checking their ego out the door in their own politics, to listen to all the stakeholders in the community, even the ones they don't agree with, to find that common ground. And that job right now, I think is gonna be hardest now than it's ever been because of the fact that we're a city that's growing so rapidly, that we have such an unstable, we have such unstable foundation and in infrastructure issues. We're in a housing shortage. Like I said, we have a renters crisis. Our APS is really struggling right now. Our small businesses are taking a dive because of our hardest hit industries because of the pandemic, and we're talking about being in the middle m- middle of a massive crime wave. Which is so.
0: Why in the world would you run for council? Because I'm
1: insane. No, right. because I genu- because I love, I love this city. And I ran the first time because of the Muslim ban and because I was genuinely, genuinely terrified of what was happening and was very scared about the fact that no one was saying anything. And I was very scared about the fact that nobody felt engaged in the level of apathy and what I was hearing about why it's pointless to even vote. It's pointless to get involved. Why would I even go to a neighborhood meeting? Why would I even say anything? Nobody cares. That was the general tone in 2017. And I was really scared for my family and my community because of the rise of xenophobia that I saw because of the rise in displacement I was seeing. And the fact that nobody was really talking about it, that had the privilege and the platform to to amplify that message. Nobody was talking about it. We were being told that if we were afraid because we are Muslim or Iranian or from one of the other seven banned countries, that us being afraid was irrational. I was being given those messages by community leaders and that really upset me. And this time running i mean the first time was to really drive up voters dri- like drive out voter turnout and to get people engaged and i feel like we succeeded at that even though i lost by even though i lost i only lost by two percent it was the closest race in the city and then fast forward or to was this it time
0: and something votes
1: it was a difference of 247 votes 49 to 51 percent um and you know fast forward to now uh no, I, I, this, I'm not walking into this job. I'm not walking into this disillusion at all. It's a very, a lot of it is very broken. There's so much work that needs to be done.
0: So speaking of that, as a council member, you know, and as a, a voter, yeah, right, as a potential council member, mm-hmm. um, and as a voter, what are you? It's okay, looking for? Okay, we call for? that a Freudian slip. It's fine. <laughs> what are you looking for in, a, in your mayor?
1: I'm looking for someone who doesn't. Just intend on pushing things through with executive leadership, but actually allowing council to be the balance that it's supposed to be to the mayor. Yes, we do have a mayor strong city, absolutely. But while council has the privilege of being hyper local, well, some of the districts of being hyper local, their job is to represent their individual communities, those neighborhoods to the mayor. And it would be really wonderful if we had a mayor that was willing to hear those perspectives, that was able to put the political will behind getting. Things done because it's going to take moving hell and high water to tackle this housing crisis, to tackle the infrastructure bills, to have everything shovel ready for the federal dollars that are about to come down to really push Marta to move on some of these on this on this bus redesign and what we're talking about with Beltline rail and all these and expanding transit. But it'd be really wonderful, like what I'm looking for in a mayor, is someone who takes full accountability for their actions, doesn't make excuses. Who isn't going to beat people down that disagree with them? Um, that wants to continue the city's transparency process and expanding our city checkbook to rebuild trust from our citizens and our constituents back in the city system. Because if you don't have trust, then a the city cannot operate. And someone who's actually going to put city employees first over putting commissioners in place, strengthen the foundation of our of our local workforce so that we can all thrive and value them for the for the vital employees that they are because we're cutting ourselves off, off the knees and yeah i want to i want a mayor who's actually going to va- value all the working parts of the city
0: and what are you looking for in a council president
1: um someone who actually knows how to who can identify each council member's strengths and knows how to build different committees so that we're not putting someone who's going to be um who is going to be what is the we looking for Re- not regressive. There we are. Mm. That's who's going to be putting people on council and putting people in leadership positions that are not going to be regressive. People that, you know, we don't need someone who believes that everybody should be locked up in charge of public, in charge of like public safety. We need people who want to believe in a, we need a council president who's going to understand that it takes a diversity of tactic and that there's a lot of different, there's going to be a lot of different egos and personalities on council and how to best build these committees so that they're balanced and that they're fair and that they're actually proactive.
0: Does it matter if the person's never been on council before? Do you I think don't that necessarily matters for think a council so. President?
1: No, not necessarily. No, because I think that I think for a long time we've had this idea of what a pathway to election looks like. And I think it's outdated. And I don't think it applies anymore. I came out of nowhere as a grassroots organizer and people were upset that I hadn't been to the MPU system. But the reason I came so close was because there were so many people that weren't represented by the MPU system and I was reaching all of them and they were frustrated. It's the exact same thing with council president. Sometimes you need, maybe it means you need fresh eyes If they've been on council. Awesome. That maybe that means that they've, that they know all the different working pieces and they know who best to go where. But you know, on the other hand, you can also say for someone who hasn't been on council that they're going to approach it with new ideas and a new vision and, probably aren't as jaded by things. So there's pros and cons to both.
0: Yeah. With our podcast, we're really hoping to reach folks who aren't really as politically engaged Mm -hmm. um, for maybe because they don't find it worth their time. They may feel like it doesn't matter what I do. It's exhausting. Those in power will do whatever they want to do. Right. So what do you say to folks like that who feel like there's no point in them engaging in local politics because at the end of the day, they don't have the power.
1: Local politics are going to affect your lives day to day,
0: always. It's still it's still, the, it's still the, the law of
1: the land that dictates the way we live day in and day out. If you want to see diversified approaches to public safety, if you don't want to see people starving or freezing to death on the street, if you want to be able to drive to work without falling into a pothole or cross the street without getting hit by a car or bike without breaking your collarbone, or be able to get on transit that actually makes sense and gets you somewhere um, in a realistic amount of time. Or if you just want, if you believe in a livable minimum wage, all those things are affected by local politics. It doesn't matter if we like them or not. I don't, I, I was, I was, I have been completely, felt completely defeated on more than one occasion. But the second you give up is the second all of it's over. And it's not just about what is best for you as a person now. And that's a lot of the flawed logic in our in our country and in in the state is that we think about ourselves first and foremost rather than thinking about our kids and our grandkids. So don't vote just for yourself, vote for them. Vote to it's one, you know, it's a privilege to do so. And I understand that it's really hard because when I ask for someone's vote, I'm asking them to believe in something again. And that's a very hard thing to ask of someone, especially a minority who's been bulldozed over and over again but to you know to ask someone to hope one more time to to come forth to put forth their vote to believe in someone enough to cast a vote for them do it because it's also it's a privilege that people have fought and died for but do it because it's also about paving a pathway for those that come after us and for those who may not have yet have the privilege to vote and that wish that they could. But don't you want to say in your local government? Because that change is going to happen whether or not you're at the table. So wouldn't you rather it happen with your consent? To me, that's what voting is.
0: All right. Thank you, Liliana Mm -hmm.
1: Bakhtiari. Hey, guys. My name is Liliana Bakhtiari, and I am running to be our representative for Atlanta City Council District 5. If you don't know where that is, it's mostly southeast Atlanta. And if you want to find out if you live in the district, you can at lilianaforatlanta.com, which is L-I-L-I-A-N-A for, F-O-R, not the number, Atlanta.com. And we do have a map there where you can check it out. Um, Election Day is on November 2nd. Early vote starts on October 12th. The reasons you should vote for me, it's a really hard thing to tell someone why they should vote for you. I, I, I tend to like to show it with my work ethic rather than words, but my whole background is in public service and mutual aid work and in crisis relief. I see politics as a form of public service because and, and crisis relief because of the times that we are living in. We are living in a city that is an extraordinary city, don't get me wrong, I love Atlanta, Atlanta's made me everything that I am. But it's also the worst city to live in right now, on minimum wage, we have the largest wealth gap in the country, we're in the middle of a housing crisis, we're building out a 20,000 unit deficit a year, we just caught up to Seattle in rent costs. So we have a lot to work on. That's not to say that the city isn't great, that we don't have a ton of potential. but I am running because I have faced a lot of the issues that our everyday residents face. I have been hungry. I've lived a paycheck away from the street. I have been displaced from houses more times than I can count. During the recession, I was living out of boxes because the houses I was living in kept getting foreclosed on. I've worked four or five jobs to put myself through school. Um, I've had to sleep out of my car because I had no place to live. And these issues are just a mild version of what most people in our city face every single day. And to me right now, what we need in politics is somebody with a subjective experience to shape proactive legislation that helps our most underserved communities first and foremost, because they are the most neglected. And when they are taken care of, all of us benefit. And I am running because I do believe in intergenerational, I believe in intergovernmental relationships. I believe in bringing stakeholders to the table. I believe in keeping neighbors informed. I believe in knocking on doors year round. I believe in being in the communities that you serve so you know what's going on. And I do believe that you do not need to have an Ivy League education or be groomed to hold this position. I believe that you just need to be a person who understands the issues and the and the obstacles that people in the community face every single day. The reason I am running because I believe I can do that. I don't believe I am the solution. I believe I can be a part of it and I believe that we can shape Atlanta proactively for decades to come and tackle our housing crisis, tackle our disappearing canopy, tackle our, our crime issues, all of it. I believe that we can tackle all of it equitably and that we have the right partners at the table. And I believe in uplifting those partners. And I'm gonna work every single day to earn your vote. And if you ever need to reach me, because I believe in being completely accessible, you can at Liliana at LilianaFortlanda.com. You can call myself 404-644-2190. I can't believe I'm putting that out on the internet. This is great for me. Do not call me after 10 p.m., please. I have to sleep. But you can always text me. You can always give me a call. You can reach me anytime. And I will always get back to you. So thank you so much. I hope to earn your support, your prayers, and your vote by November 2nd. And please reach out if you have any questions. Thank you all.